seems that Hong Kong, a lot of its problems are, are local. I mean, we say we want to be a smart city. Mm. Well, we seem to be a long way from adopting no. smart technology. We That's don't have right. electric buses, yeah. electric digital vehicles. We're not very good at digital payment systems or artificial intelligence. We're struggling to deal with COVID-19. These seem yeah. to be all local issues that have to be de- dealt with locally and quite urgently, do you think? Mm, I think we're getting... Uh, smarter, I think it is better than before. Even though, you know, taking cab, you know, you still have to pay cash and also pay, you know, one of, you know, with one of those coins that is left over from decades ago. Uh, <laughs> but, but, uh, Ends Financial, right? So a subsidiary of of Alibaba and also WeChat uh, has been making an effort uh, to to make the electronic payment system more user friendly here. Uh, so I would say that you know there there are some positive changes, but it's taking some time to happen. Howard, it's always been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for coming onto the program during the course of this year. Wish you a very happy new year. Look forward to talking to you again in 2022. Happy new year, Peter. Thank you. That's Hao Hong, Managing Director and Head of Research at Bocom International. <laughs> Wrong jingle. Still got to get used to pressing um, all, the, all the right buttons. Let me give you... Um, an update on the markets, uh, first of all. Uh, the SX200 in, um, in Australia is currently up about 0.9%. Uh, the Nikkei 225 in Japan is down about 0.2%. The Cosby uh, off about half a percent in South Korea. Uh, in Hong Kong, looks like the Hang Seng is going to add about 30 um, or 40 points uh, at the open. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. We're going to continue our review of 2021 and look forward to 2022. My guest tomorrow will be Richard Harris of Port Shelter Investment Management. Coming up after the news is back chat with Janice Wong and Anna Fenton. Let me give you an update on the weather forecast for this week. Uh, cool in the mornings today, going to become mainly fine and dry during the day, maximum temperature of 21 degrees. It's going to remain cool in the morning and at night and mainly fine during the day for the rest of this week. It's going to become windier on New Year's Eve and in the morning of New Year's Day. 17 degrees right now, 73% relative humidity. It's 8.32. Here's Andrew Shorsky with the Half Hour News. National Security Police say they have arrested six senior staff members or former senior staff members of an online media company for conspiracy to publish seditious material. The arrested persons include three men and three women aged 34 to 73. Over 200 uniformed and plainclothes police officers raided the office of the online media company in Kuantong, Stand News, said that National Security Police went to the home of its deputy assignment editor, Ronson Chan, around 6 a.m. this morning. The Social Welfare Department says it sent a team of more than 20 experts to examine children living in a foster home at the center of abuse allegations. It says the 70 residents of the Society for Protection of Children facility were in stable condition, but it would continue to follow up. The Society said last night that it has suspended four more staff after reviewing CCTV footage. Its director, Susan So, says police have been notified and the Society is expanding a task force it's set up to look into the matter. So at this stage, uh, a lot of things we still need to be investigated. So that's why we formed a special task force and we are going to step that up to involve board members and outsider independent members. Three employees had earlier been arrested, two of whom have been charged. Health officials say they found no COVID cases in overnight lockdown and testing operations at residential blocks linked to Cathay Pacific Air crew members. 
Officials tested 210 people at Twilight Court in Discovery Bay's Peninsula Village and a further 515 residents of the Seacrest in Tunmun in the operations, which began at 7 o'clock last night. A 46-year-old Cathay Pacific flight crew member living in Discovery Bay is one of six people confirmed to have the virus yesterday, and a 44-year-old crew member who lives in Tunmun tested preliminary positive. France and Britain have reported their highest daily number of coronavirus cases so far as the Omicron variant continues to spread. French authorities confirmed 180,000 cases yesterday, the highest total for any country in Europe. Britain reported 130,000 cases overnight, a day after the government said said that there would be no new restrictions in England before the new year. Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland have tightened their social distancing rules. Professor Andrew Watterson is a public health expert. If we're looking at the evidence, and we should be guided by the the evidence, then just before Christmas, the English uh, COVID rate per 100,000 was way, way above anything in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So I think there are real causes for concern about England not being guided by the science. There's, uh, there's been widespread criticism of the decision by Russia's Supreme Court to close Memorial International, the country's most prominent rights organization. The group was shut down for violating the law on those considered foreign agents. Judge Alan Nazarova ordered the group's closure after prosecutors said it failed to mark its publications with a foreign agent label the tag for groups receiving overseas funds. Prosecutors prosecutors also accuse it of denigrating the memory of the Soviet Union and rehabilitating Nazi criminals. A group of Afghan women have held a protest in the capital, Kabul, demanding an end to what they say is the killing and torture by the Taliban of former civil servants and soldiers. Around 50 women chanting justice marched through the city center before being stopped by Taliban forces. That's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your co-host today is Anna Fenton. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, everybody. Today we're talking about an expanding child abuse scandal and why you should eat less meat. The Hong Kong Society for the Protection of Children announced last night it had suspended four more staff. Days after three childcare workers at its Prince Edward home were arrested over the alleged abuse or neglect of at least 18 toddlers. The group says it's pouring over a month's worth of footage from hundreds of CCTV cameras from its facilities to enforce what it calls a zero-tolerance policy against abuse. The alleged cases have prompted an outpouring of concern both from the public and the government, with Chief Executive Carrie Lam calling for new legislation to boost child protection, while the social welfare chief has ordered an internal probe. So is the current system enough to protect children? Should Hong Kong make corporal punishment a crime? What else needs to be done? At 9.15am, we'll discuss how high meat consumption might be damaging to your health in an unexpected way by contributing to air pollution. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or just give us a call on 23388266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Dr. Patrick Chung, the chairman of Against Child Abuse. 
Lewis, Dr. May Lam, the Vice President of the Hong Kong College of Psychiatrists, and Dr. Sandra Zhang, an Associate Professor at the Hong Kong University's Department of Social Work and Social Administration. Good morning to all of you and welcome to Backchat. Now, uh, morning. Good morning. Now let's uh, start with you, Dr. Cheung. What's your reaction to the latest development in this uh, child abuse incident? It, it looks like it's uh, growing bigger and bigger. Yes, uh, it's, it's, it's quite sad. It's quite an quite a, uh, incident that uh, nobody would expect to happen, especially for uh, young children, you know, uh, ages uh, 0 to 3. And uh, this group of children, they are the most uh, needed to be uh, protected, and uh, and it's rightly happened, you know, um, in in the care institute. Um, so um, I think the public uh, have have a very uh, saddened over all this. What, what about you, Dr. Lam? I mean, originally it involved three staff, but now the Hong Kong Society for the Protection of Children says uh, four more staff are involved. Right, okay. Well, I think it's certainly alarming because, uh, like, you know, uh, being abused, like physical abuse in such an uh, institution for, for the kids uh, can make a big impact on the development. Like, because of, we're talking about, like, you know, the physical injury, which could be uh, short-term, immediate, including, like, um, you know, some uh, injuries or bruises or laceration. But that could lead to also long-term consequences. If we're talking about, like, fractured bones or, you know, in some uh, circumstances, we hear people having head injury, which could lead to some long-term and permanent damage, you know, um, to your children. In particular, we're more concerned not just the physical, but the ongoing emotional emotional like consequences and development on such a young kid because like um these kids they're being taken care of they're supposed to be protected and nurtured and have a trusted relationship with the caretakers and then at the same time these people are doing a lot of like uh, physical punishment you know causing injury to these children and they could have a long-term impact to their psychological development like um you know uh, we're talking about you know how they form relationship in long term in terms of attachment, in terms of how they see the world, how they see people who are close to them. And that's why, you know, there could be a long-term, you know, consequences. And of course, in media terms, you know, kids would have some emotional uh, issues because of underlying, you know, anxiety and depression, depending on whether or not the kids are old enough to express their emotion verbally. Or we can see a lot of, like, uh, you know, poor self-esteem and, you know, sometimes, you know, isolated. And that could also induce further abuse. And sad to say, like people who are physically abused, you know, in long term, they with chronic exposure to aggression, you know, they can, the victim themselves be, can become a perpetuator, you know, when they grow up. So, like, there is a big consequences in these children who are supposed to be protected, but yet at the same time, they're being abused, you know, physically and possibly emotionally by people they trusted. Uh, all right. Uh, now, um, Dr. Chung, the Secretary for Welfare, Lord Chi Kuang, has ordered an investigation to look into the inadequate monitoring of staff at the centre involved. Do you think and that is a problem, the inadequate monitoring of staff at these uh, care facilities? Uh, the um, the uh, every, um, uh, welfare organisation, uh, if they are under the uh, supervision of the social welfare department, the social welfare department or that, uh, uh, should have a... Uh, uh, responsibility to overlook the um, supervision, overall supervision, including uh, like staff training and the, the operation of the um, of the organisation and how the services are being provided. So, um, as I understand from the uh, 
from the media, the uh, Social Welfare Department, the chief, have um, met with the organization to sort of uh, have a meeting. And then the uh, director of the organization have uh, spoken uh, yesterday, uh, listing out the actions to be uh, taken. And uh, so this is this is a um, sort of um, an immediate uh, response. But I think uh, overall, for all the organizations, uh, welfare organizations, they should have their own um, sort of uh, quality ensuring uh, insurance uh, that includes the uh, relevant child protection policy for each in uh, for each organization. So those child protection policies, for example, some items like. Uh, uh, for new recruits, they should have uh, training. They should be uh, well informed of um, uh, uh, the, the need to protect the children, not to apply any. Uh, Dr. Lung, I have to stop you. Are you saying they yeah. don't have training? No, 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 no. Uh, I'm just general speaking. The child uh, child protection policy policy for each internal organisation should help to improve the um, the. the, the the caring of uh, children under this organization. So each in, uh, organization, if they have a child protection policy, uh, that includes, for example, for the new recruits, they should have a, a sex conviction uh, record check, uh, a proper... Well, they, uh, they do, they do. That, that's, that's legally mandated already. To work yes. with children, you have to have that. I have to have yeah. that as a counsellor, even. Yeah, th that's right. So... So to uh, review each organization, so um, one needs to check if these procedures are being uh, actually done and properly done and needs to be audited. But so, Dr. Uh, Lung, this is all very airy-fairy, isn't it? I visited that home some years ago, but it was very impressive. <clears throat> um, very light, airy spaces. It would have been, in my opinion, hard to do anything covert there. It's all very open. And I'm just wondering what you think has gone wrong. And what's the point of having CCTV if nobody looks at it? Yes. So, um, so I'm just commenting uh, in general the running of each organisation. So, uh, I, so as I understand, the um, is being investigated. It may not be appropriate for me to comment specifically for each organisation. But I'm speaking in general for each organisation. They should have those measures. Um, uh, uh, in place. All right, uh, so that the child, yeah, I understand. So that the children can be better look after. All right, uh, let's uh, let's yeah. bring in uh, Dr. Zhang. Uh, what is your view, uh, Dr. Zhang? Is the staff monitoring system at these uh, care facilities in general inadequate? I mean, what is the current system like? Well, um, I think it's hard to comment on uh, individual organizations, but I know the government has been issuing uh, different kinds of uh, mandates. Uh, and also regulations to require them to do uh, the monitoring. Now, what amazes me for this particular case is uh, it is a group behavior, and it is done in open space. It looks like that uh, these uh, staff, now we have uh, four to seven involved, they commit the, the behavior uh, in open space, surrounded by neighbors. They are actually able to overlook the site, and they know it is monitored by CCTV. So it is worthwhile to consider why these people, knowing that they they cannot hide and they are not hiding, are uh, they doing in uh, open space? 
So why they're doing this? So I think another angle we have to tackle aside from all the monitoring, training, registration, and things like that, we have to consider the psychology of these uh, staff. Uh, uh, concepts like uh, group think, burn out, Dr. Jung, if you're using the phone hands-free or have the radio on, could you possibly um, not be hands-free? You're very echoey. Better now? That's better. We can hear you okay. better now. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I just want to say, um, earlier in my introduction, I mentioned that uh, the Hong Kong Society for the Protection of Children um, it announced uh, last night that uh, um, it will... Uh, pour over or look over a month's worth of footage from hundreds of CCTV cameras from its facilities to enforce what it calls a zero tolerance policy. And uh, just now I just uh, received a, um, a message on our Facebook page from uh, John. Um, he says um, his response to that is um, only now checking months worth of CCTV. The Society for Protection of Children has not given any assurance how and when it will change its normal practice. It is the same as a typical Hong Kong organization spin. Instead, RTHK report they promised to set up a task force. Um, what do you think of uh, the way they are following up on this uh, incident? I think they have been uh, trying their very best within such a short time. Uh, on the one hand, they have to continue with the investigation and reporting. On the other hand, they are setting up an uh, independent investigation committee right away, involving independent and also uh, lay members to make sure that the process is uh, neutral and transparent. So I think uh, in terms of crisis management, this is more or less what they can do for the time being. And of course, I, I'm sure they have been issuing internal uh, guidelines and uh, assurance guidelines as to prevent all these cases from happening. Dr. Lam, um, can I take up your point on that you raised about developmental trauma for these children? Yeah. Reading through the clippings about how this case is being dealt with, there seems to be an overemphasis on the physical consequences for these kids and rather less on the emotional well-being of these children. Now, you've highlighted the long-term consequences of this sort of abuse. Do you see that the balance is correct in how these children are being treated, or is it going for the obvious thing, which is physical marks on bodies? Yeah, I think definitely, like, the obvious things, uh, like the physical marks, would draw, you know, uh, the media and a lot of people's attention. But the hidden, like, the hidden issues is the long-term psychological consequences. As I mentioned earlier, like, um, you know, kids, you know, there's an imbalance of power. They're, they're supposed to be nurtured and taken care of. And yet for the person, the very person whom they trusted so much, at the same time, you know, supposed to give them tender and love. And at times, maybe they could. But at the same time, they're also doing all these nasty, you know, um, you know physical or emotional, you know, abuse to these children. And that could lead to a long-term consequences. You know, we're not talking about the superficial injury that we might see or the injury that is visible can cause, you know, um, impairment in short term or long term. But it's more like the invisible psychological consequences that we're concerned about. In particular, in the young children, now these children, for whatever reason, they're not being taken care of at home, you know, they're being taken care of at the institution. And that is an issue, um, you know, at the first place. But then having having this happened in an institution that is a double trauma for this um, case. Now, the long-term consequences, you know, uh, would be have the emotional, 
you know, uh, issues about anxiety, depression, and also how they see the world, how they form, you know, relationship with other people. Whenever, you know, when they grow up, if they encounter people who are close to them. And that's why sometimes, you know, there is a fear of abandonment. At the same time, you know, they cannot react uh, appropriately. And we're talking about, you know, a lot of, um, you know, long-term post-traumatic issues, and that could, you know, lead to a lot of long-term consequences. So so what you're saying is, I think, I think if I could summarize that this this leads to trust issues yeah. when these children grow yeah. up and they see the world as basically an unsafe place exactly. and they would have um, extreme levels of fear and anxiety compared to normal people who've yeah. learned that people can be trusted to meet that's, their needs. That's correct. Because, like, um, you know, for adults being taken care of, there's a sense of safety and security. And once that's just damaged, you know, that could have a long-term, you know, impact on their development and the way they react to other people. And am I right in thinking that trauma like this that's experienced at the pre-verbal age um, is just as damaging as, as when the children are older? Yes, yes. Uh, and they might, like, like, they might not have the verbal skills to express, you know, the feeling and emotion. But a lot of times these kids, you know, they could express themselves, you know, in other behavior and also like in the long term trusted issues um, with people in the world. So if we were to broaden this out, do you think this is some sort of a sign of the times that is there something about this generation or the, these carers seem to be some of them quite young, um, as young as 23. 40, there's a younger, there's a younger one, I thought 23. Um, what's going on here? Are we seeing um, people being, uh, you know, lacking empathy as part of changes in society, perhaps the Internet? What, what trend do you see that this that this is representing? Dr. Lam. Uh, right, okay, you, you mean the perpetuator? Yeah, yeah, I mean, what makes somebody abuse a small defenseless child? All right, okay, now, I, I think it's very complex. It's complex on the individual level and also in the societal level. Like, on the individual level, we really, like, um, you know, we should, uh, you know, look into whether or not there's any, like, um, you know, um, psychological issues, you know, in, in the caretaker. And, uh, and also, like, uh, I think, like, uh, if, when you know people are under a lot of stress, you know a lot of um, you know um, uh, you know stress and and you know the stress level is high. Sometimes you know um, you know they do things uh, like this, and also like um, a lot of these uh, perpetuator, you know they could be a victim, you know as a child. So yeah. I think a lot of things need to be taken care of, and also like in a group behavior, like if like a, a bystander, like someone witness you know, someone doing damage to another person, if that person, like, uh, doesn't say anything, research has also demonstrated that, you know, there is a highly likely consequence they would do the same things to the other people. So I guess it, it is very important to, to, to make it, like, um, you know, it's a serious, you know, thing, and then people need to alert each other. I mean, such things happen in a, in a place, in an institution, you know, you know, should stop rather than, you know, keep silent because, you know, um, you know, the same behavior, you know, um, you know, can, can spread to other people. So, so Dr. Lam, you've talked about uh, the, the impact it can have on, on children. So what do you think is the best way to prevent uh, similar incidents from happening in future? Now the Chief Executive Carrie Lam says she'll table proposals to step up um, child protection and to LegCo as soon as possible, which will include legislation on mandatory reporting of child abuse cases. What do you think of that idea? Now, I think reporting uh, child abuse, abuse cases is very important. 
to all those people who are, you know, in touch with children, you know, working with children, and also like, uh, you know, in, in um, you know, uh, in a mandate, you know, um, kind of thing. And, and also at the same time, like, um, you know, early detection will be very important because, uh, you know, cases that we've seen like on newspaper these few days, but I think there are a lot, maybe there are other cases that I haven't seen. So like early detection, make the awareness, you know, with law, you know, the lack of all these would be very important, you know, from an institution level and also from a societal level to protect our children and, you know, our future, our next generation. Dr. Cheung, I know you support mandatory reporting of child abuse cases, but uh, is it practical or, or fair to rely on adults who may not be professionally trained to spot signs of abuse? I think I think it is the, uh, uh, the community issues. You know, everybody needs to have that notions to protect our children, and uh, mandatory reporting is one of the mechanisms that we can do better. The purpose is not to punish the, those uh, those uh, th- those parents who who apply corporal punishment, uh, but to uh, provide early identification and early uh, intervention so that uh, we can stop the abuse before it escalates. You know, corporal punishment, uh, it, you know, is a very fine line. You can easily escalate to child abuse and very uh, uh, bad consequences. So we are very in supportive of the mandatory uh, reporting. Uh, it, we have been uh, advocating this uh, for many, many years, and uh, we hope the Legislative Council would put this as a first priority priority in, in the agenda and have it uh, passed. And then uh, uh, it comes with the training and the education uh, to firstly involve the uh, uh, professional first and then uh, sort of uh, gradually uh, moving to the whole uh, uh, community. So, what, um, yeah. what about you, Dr. Zhang? What's your view on that? Yes, um, uh, thank you for the uh, for the question. In terms of uh, mandatory reporting for suspected child abuse cases, I think in, in the long term, this is the right direction to pursue. But if we examine the current situation in Hong Kong, it is also important to know whether the time is mature enough uh, to, to exercise that as soon as possible. Because we also, in the social welfare sector, uh, identify there are not enough uh, packages of services before and after to support such mandatory reporting. We have to make sure that uh, the procedures of reporting is uh, protective to the child uh, in question and also to the uh, reporters. Uh, sometimes systems are not in place to make sure that the whistleblower does not suffer in the, in the process. And also the child who, who has been uh, uh, reported to be suspected of abuse, well, they went through a lot of procedures and at the end of the day, because there are not enough services here and there to uh, protect them in, in due places, uh, they are either put uh, return to the uh, residence to, with the abusers or they are apparently seemingly punished to be put into uh, some services which uh, make them suffer. Uh, instead of being uh, victims, they were punished uh, to be removed from places that they decide to reside. Uh, so aside from this uh, mandatory reporting, we also want to advocate the idea of child safeguarding idea. That is to make uh, institutions set up policies 
to educate and to ensure that the staff know children have to be served under very protected behavior and attitude. They have to be committed to that. And also the whistleblowers will not be penalized uh, when they ring a bell about uh, suspected child abuse. So there are a lot of packages that have to be mature before the mandatory uh, child protection, uh, I mean, uh, reporting of uh, suspected child abuse can be put into place safely and serving the intended purposes. Surely this starts at a much more ground level with having one exactly. responsible yeah. adult on site keeping an eye on things. You can talk about all these packages uh, at length and they all sound great, but how does that translate into day-to-day -day eyeballs on care? Well, I, I think uh, with this case, I think it is a sad case, but then it should have set a huge alarm to all the uh, institutions or services which has been running services to serve children to really uh, ensure that surveillance, monitoring, and uh, supervision and prevention measures are up to the uh, current standard, at least, uh, to prevent these kind of cases from happening. And, of course, we also have to check whether uh, there are um, staff recruitment, staff uh, uh, sustainment kind of policies to make sure that there are enough hands around to help. All right, uh, Dr. Jung, I'm afraid uh, we have to take a short break for the news summary. Uh, thanks uh, again for joining us uh, this morning. And Dr. May Lam, the uh, Vice President of the Hong Kong College of Psychiatrists, and also many thanks to Dr. Patrick Cheung, the Chairman of Against Child Abuse. And uh, Dr. Jung, uh, you'll be staying with us for a bit longer so we can continue our discussion after the news when we will be joined by Priscilla Lowe, a member of the Commission on Children. And uh, don't forget, after 9.15, we'll be looking at a new study that shows that eating less meat can reduce premature deaths related to air pollution. And uh, if you want to ask questions or just share your views on today's topics, give us a call. Our number is 233-88266. And uh, now the weather forecast. Cool in the morning, becoming mainly fine and dry later on with a top temperature of around 21 degrees. Right now it's 18 degrees, relative humidity 75%. In the capital, Kabul, demanding an end to what they say is the killing and torture by the Taliban of former civil servants and soldiers. Around 50 women chanting justice marched through the city center before being stopped by Taliban forces. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Anna Fenton and me, Janice Wong. We're talking about an expanding child abuse scandal. If you have any questions or comments on today's topics, feel free to contact us. Our email is backchat at rthk.hk. Our telephone number is 233-88266. And our Facebook page is Back Chat on RTHK Radio 3. Still with us here on the program is Dr. Sandra Jung from the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration. Also on the line now is Priscilla Lowe, a member of the Commission on Children. Good morning to you, Mrs. Lowe, and thanks for joining us on the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So um, the Hong Kong Society for the Protection of Children announced last night that it had suspended four more staff just days after three child care workers at its uh, Prince Edward home were arrested over the alleged abuse or neglect of at least uh, 18 toddlers. What's your reaction to this latest development? Oh, well, first of all, I think the case is under um, special investigation, both by the government and also by the agency itself. 
So I, I think I would um, uh, prefer not to go into details about the case because everyone actually needs more details in order to be adequately comment. But in general, I think it's important for the entire um, society to see that every child actually deserves a safe and full and decent life. And that has been the commitment of Hong Kong uh, since 27 years ago, when the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child has been extended into Hong Kong to ensure this belief um, becoming an actual practice instead of just a poster on the wall. But the heartbreaking case has kind of made a loud and clear message that we have not honored our commitment or we have failed um, in the adequate protection of, to start with, this group of children. And I believe there are more um, who have been killed or badly injured in the past years uh, within their family or in, say, different forms of care. So I think we, the government really needs to go into details in understanding how the government and agency have been honoring this commitment and putting those in policies, in practices, uh, and in daily life to ensure what we said we want to, to honor has been done. So, Ms. Lloyd, do you think other big children's homes like Bowl and Cook should be checking their systems and procedures now as well? Absolutely. I think the monitoring system needs to be adequately reviewed. The monitoring system of the government, the social welfare department, who has been funding and uh, who has a policy guiding, and we do have an ordinance, child care service ordinance and child care service um, regulations being worked out very carefully for Hong Kong, and in fact reflecting that corporal punishment is prohibited in both uh, regulations and in law. But um, in in such um, cases, um, it it obviously seems not really strictly um, followed through or monitored. So I think both institutions must um, adequately and thoroughly review, and not only these two, um, because they're the residential, the only two um, agencies um, being authorized to do this, but all other, say, um, uh, residential or daycare services for our very young children must at the same time review their policies and guidelines and training for their staff and support provided, supervision and so on, um, given to their staff at different levels. Those will be very important. So and in this particular case, sorry for, for one sorry. more point, because um, the latest development is that the agency is forming a special investigation group and also reviewing the 800-something um, CCTV, which are really a brave and um, positive move, constructive move. But if these measures uh, have been earlier launched and, and um, arranged before anything happened, I think that would be even more important for both institutions and even for other uh, institutions serving our very young children. You have to say, what's the point of CCTV if nobody looks at it? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's not just the, the, the rare occasion of going reviewing it, but periodically. And also the, the ordinance and also the um, regulations did, uh, do have this uh, arrangement of an inspector or inspectoral kind of um, services. But how would these be done? How often and, and whether those have been seriously conducted with the involvement of necessary parties? 
uh, for example, uh, various um, staff at different levels or even um, board members and, and also parents and children themselves. Despite the fact that these are very young children, but very young children can speak, have their own language and their way of expressing that skillful workers will be able to help or identify whether there are things happening. Mm. What's your what's your feeling about this? I feel sort of heartbroken. It, it just seems extremely sad that this could happen. It is extremely sad. And I, I think um, the, uh, ensuring this um, a safe and full and decent life for, for every, every citizen, uh, young and old, I would say, and middle age and so on and so forth, for a respectable community. And while we are rebuilding Hong Kong, we're saying that we're rebuilding Hong Kong, after the past two or three years, traumatic experience, shaking the entire community. I think there's a lot we need to, to do instead of just paying lip service or merely um, covering some of the minor or, or different steps. I think a more thorough kind of um, a plan needs to be worked out specifically for our very young ones. Um, and uh, for international uh, commitments, uh, there are international um, uh, standards and movements. At least there are eight steps safeguarding children being worked out. So I'll go through very quickly. It's developing a policy, procedures for responding, advice and support, and minimizing risk, guideline for behavior, recruitment, training, and communication, and working with partners, and monitoring and evaluation. I think the eight steps need to be built into every one of the um, institutions or organizations for early childhood and, and for children as such in order to ensure a culture of really respecting the rights uh, and the protection for children is being um, laid down and carried through. Dr. Zhang, what do you think yeah. of uh, what Mrs. Lui ju has just been saying? Do you think uh, other childcare facilities should also uh, review their own guidelines and maybe uh, check their own CCTV footage as well? I would say so. I would say the case has rung a big alarm to all the relevant organizations and uh, they should really uh, try to figure out ways to ensure that uh, what is written uh, for the guidelines and uh, the quality assurance measures, they are really put into place. So random spot checking secret uh, service users, business, etc. should be um, continued by the um, uh, responsible government organizations, but also within the organizations, they should be arranging that themselves as well. They, they might need to train uh, volunteers or staff or uh, recruit especially uh, trained persons to, to do these kind of business to make sure that uh, the monitoring is in place. And uh, Mrs. Lowe, what do you think of uh, the training of staff at these uh, childcare facilities? Do you think it's adequate? I think the training and support given before entering the service, during the service, uh, would be both very important and essential. I don't think um, at, at the present moment we, we, we are doing a perfect um, work uh, uh, previously and also currently. It is a demanding and important work in training our colleagues uh, at different levels, in the forefront in particular. I, I think more and more we need to ensure those who are entering the field to understand the importance, uh, the mission in itself, 
the standard as stipulated in UN Convention. It's not just something on the paper, but it's how you see the entire vision of the service and the society in the long run. And secondly, how do you put those into your practice, day-to-day life with the children who may be active or who may be sometimes unruly, and, and yet with those kind of uh, challenges and difficulties, you still manage to acquire a non-violent, but patient, and te- uh, careful, um, skillful approach. But those kind of skills and techniques need to be learned and need to be empowered of those in the forefront. So the time devoted in helping them, in supervising, in ensuring that they do a good job, sometimes is really insufficient. And particularly, I think the, the administrative kind of support uh, and manpower situation um, needs to be looked at in order to know whether the prevention at the very forefront is at all possible. Do we, do we know much about the pay scale of the staff in these places? I, I think um, there, there are available uh, data and information about the pay scale. But in general, I would say that um, you are rightly in pointing this particular specific area out. If you are not paying the staff adequately and you are not uh, allowing the support and um, in terms of uh, knowledge and skills and also the attitude empowerment, the value empowerment, and then, of course, we, we are not able to recruit those who, who really or seriously care or not enough in terms of recruiting and sustaining personnel in that area. Mm. And uh, looking at this uh, latest incident, uh, Mrs. Lowe, do you think um, now is the right time to explore the idea of banning corporal punishment in Hong Kong? Oh, not only now. We have been crying out. We have been urging that. I joined the service in 1979. And in fact, Sweden in 1979 has already banned corporal punishment. So for all these years... We, uh, and the, we work with, say, um, experts in UK, in different parts of the world, in Australia, and, and they, they have many um, evidence-based research indicating the problems, the ills, uh, uh, and the violations of um, uh, uh, children's rights uh, in terms of the use of co- allowing corporal punishment um, in home setting. We, we have um, abandoned corporal punishment actually in institutions, um, in our, our, our um, uh, for unruly children in, in those institutions, but we have still allowed corporal punishment to be considered as a reasonable chastisement. And in the society, there are many families still hitting our children, shaming them, uh, shaking them, and, and not being properly kind of educated or informed or supported. So I, I do not personally um, urge for a very harsh kind of a system, punitive system, um, towards the disciplining of children, nor the disciplining of parents or professionals. But I, I think the kind of um, um, responsibility and duty of care needs to be made very clear and the baseline set clearly for all parties involved. Dr. Zhang, what's your view on that? Yes, I fully, I fully support uh, Mrs. Lewis, uh, uh suggestions and uh, it has uh, a, a very long uh, updated point uh, in uh, child care sectors and in uh, parenting education as well um, but then I think the um, attitude the knowledge and skills have all been stepped up 
and also the uh, parents and the childcare uh, givers have also to take care of their own mental health so that they are in control of themselves. Uh, sometimes uh, these uh, abuses are done uh, incidentally and impulsively. Of course, there are cases that are also done on a long-term, deliberate basis. But at least we hope uh, there can be some measures at least to uh, make the uh, people who are tending to children take care of themselves so that they are in control. They are in their same normal self most of the time uh, so that they can really take good care of children. All right, uh, we'll have to leave it there for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. Sandra Jung from the University of Hong Kong's Department of Social Work and Social Administration, and also Priscilla Lowe, a member of the Commission on Children. It's now 17 minutes past nine, and it's time to turn to our final topic today. And uh, that's about a new study that shows that eating less meat can reduce premature deaths related to air pollution on the mainland. To comment, we're joined on the line now by the leader of the study, Professor Amos Tai of the Earth System Science Program at the Chinese University's Faculty of Science. Good morning, Professor Tai. Well, I'm very glad to be here. Thanks for joining us on the program. So can you first tell us more about your study's findings? Sure, definitely. So uh, all of us know that higher meat consumption can contribute to more greenhouse gas emission and climate change. But our work newly shows that uh, higher meat consumption can also lead to significant amount of uh, ammonia released could, to the do, environment. Could you just explain how that all works? Uh, I'm sorry, is that? Could you just explain how that all works? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like uh, higher meat consumption, uh, in order to produce more meat, you have to use more fertilizer to, pro- uh, to produce the feed to feed the animals. And, and at the same can, time, can, can, can we and just specify about that feed? A lot of it oh, is yeah, increasingly sure, sure. soy products. And, and for this, the Amazon rainforest is being chopped down at a, an amazing rate to produce the soy that feeds the cattle, right? Exactly. exactly. Now, the, the cattle the then produce the methane exactly. because they have yeah. very um, active gas systems. And this as well contributes, doesn't it? Yes, exactly. So um, the methane is part of what the animal would release, right? right. And uh, But also animal waste would uh, release a lot of ammonia. Ammonia yeah. is not a greenhouse gas per se, but it can contribute greatly to particulate matter, uh, which is a serious pollution problem in China. Because so, because yeah. it evaporates or what? how does that work? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically uh, the ammonia from animal waste or the fertilizer used to feed crop can uh, evaporate into the air and then uh, it would basically react with uh, nitric acid and also sulfuric acid in the air to form particulate matter. Yeah, right. So that's how it works. And it also goes into the groundwater system, doesn't it? Oh, well, actually ammonia mostly evaporates into the air. Okay. Yeah, but then the nitrate uh, also from uh, the animal waste and fertilizer would be leaked to groundwater as well. Right, right, so how specifically does this translate into if we... Uh, the average Hong Kong person eats about 200 grams of meat a day. That's about yes. 8 ounces. Now, the recommended amount is 70 grams a day, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, or below that, 40 to 75 Right, now that would look like the size of a pack of cards or a bar of soap if people oh, exactly. want to or know what it looks like. Hand. Yeah, well, it depends on the size of your hand, I guess. But mm. so... Uh, what else can you tell people about the real damage that eating meat is doing to them and the environment? All right. 
so what uh, our study has specifically found is that uh, it leads to worse uh, air quality, which uh, very few studies, actually no other study has found before. And then it would lead to like nearly 90,000 more premature deaths per year. From what specifically? From uh, particulate matter uh, pollution, yeah, which would then cause a lot of uh, lung diseases and respiratory diseases that would include uh, chronic uh, bronchitis and lung cancers. Uh, indeed, it is one of the leading causes of uh, death, a uh, premature death in China. Yeah, so our study has found that uh, actually part of the reason is uh, from uh, rising meat consumption in China over the past 30 years that contributes to up to about 20% of the particulate matter pollution in China. And you're seeing this trans, uh, coming across as cancers, for uh, example? Cancers, uh, yes, exactly. Uh, cancer, uh, lung cancers, uh, premature uh, deaths from, say, uh, chronic bronchitis and other kinds of pul- pulmonary diseases. Now, there's another... I really want to make this point because it's so important. The polycystic aromatic hydrocarbons in meat, particularly in Hong Kong, um, where people love barbecued meat, um, experiments and research on farming in Europe has showed that just being within 30 feet of a barbecue exposes your skin and your throat to really serious damage from uh, the fumes from cooking meat at high temperatures, including woks. So could you speak to that, about the damage of eating meat that's cooked at high temperatures? Uh, Yes. Uh, Well, actually, I'm not a a real expert in, you know, the the, um, uh, sort of the pollution from uh, cooking meat, but uh, it is actually very true that when you cook meat, uh, there will be a lot of fume coming out of it, and that would include all sorts of uh, carcinogenic uh, substances. Yeah, uh, and uh, and our studies further shows that uh, not only that part of cooking meat, but producing meat, uh, raising animals, and also using fertilizers could also contribute to this process as well. So, Professor Tsai, from what you're saying, uh, switching to a more plant-based diet could help reduce the serious exactly, air pollution yeah. problems on the mainland. So, yeah. so do you think the same idea can be applied to other places as well? Exactly, yes. And indeed, uh, for many, many places, including China, a lot of the effort to reduce air pollution focuses a lot on uh, the energy sector and transportation sector. Uh, But we have shown that targeting agriculture and especially targeting our own diet may also help uh, reduce air pollution by quite a large amount. And thus, uh, I think any any places with rising um, sort of rising consumption of meat, especially in developing countries like uh, the rest of Southeast Asia uh, and uh, on Latin America uh, and uh, Africa, for instance, uh, all this, this approach could work as well. And uh, how much meat or how much less meat do we have to consume uh, for us to notice an improvement in air quality? So uh, our studies have found that as uh, if we uh, follow the Chinese dietary guideline of 2016, which is uh, what you have already said, about 40 to 70, uh, 75 gram, uh, this would be already have a very significant impact on both our uh, health, I mean, significant benefit for our health and also for air quality. And that would also reduce greenhouse emission and mitigate climate change as well. So uh, considering that Right now, we consume about uh, 150 to 20, uh, 200 grams of meat per day. Uh, so basically cutting down our meat consumption at least by half uh, would already help. So how do you tackle this? Because increasing meat assum- uh, consumption is in- associated with increasing affluence, isn't it? And almost a status symbol now. So how do you tackle the, the desirability of eating meat? I think uh, a lot more education about the environmental and health impact of 
uh, meat consumption and uh, also uh, and also more sort of like guidelines from government and businesses of how to host events uh, where food is served uh, would be very important. I think it is really a bio change of heart uh, where these can be approached because for instance uh, what I've noticed is that in a lot of uh, more affluent cities including Hong Kong there's a beginning a trend of uh, being more aware of the health and environmental impact of meat consumption and more people are thinking about uh, reducing their meat consumption and also uh, are probably are turning into a vegetarian or vegan. Uh, this trend is actually happening already and I see very good signs of that uh, continuing in uh, major cities. But uh, education and public awareness would be very important in this regard. And this is without even mentioning the cruelty of factory farming, which is such a big factor of modern meat production. Oh, exactly. Yeah, a lot of the problem actually arises from the how the meat is actually grown or raised. Yeah, so that uh, you're very right in saying that. So how do you tackle this image problem? Because right now I observe this, it's very trendy to eat Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers and all these mm -hmm. sorts of things, but they're just processed products yet again, aren't they? They're not true plant-based meals. They're actually the product of a, of a plant and not one that grows out of the ground. Yes, uh, yeah, that's very true. Those kind of uh, processed, sort of like a plant-based meat, still kind of processed food, and a lot of energy can, can be... Uh, exactly, sort of, yeah. Exactly, a lot of energy would be uh, consumed during the process as well. So uh, I think overall, they are still less... Uh, sort of less environmentally impacting than uh, meat production per se, but they're not helping that much. And actually switching to real plant-based food, uh, like basically reading, I mean, eating real vegetables, uh, beans and cereal would definitely be better. Uh, and I think um, a, a good way to promote it is our connection to culture, uh, to connection to nature, because uh, Food eating is one of the ways through which we can connect with nature, uh, most directly linked to nature indeed. And uh, if we are just eating something that we cannot even recognize what it is, um, it, we are really losing that connection with nature. And uh, I think this is something that not only speaks to our desirability, our desire to uh, connect to nature, uh, but also to sort of save the environment as well. Do you eat a plant-based diet? Oh, yeah, 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 I myself do. Yes, I think I have already cut down my meat consumption uh, at least by half from you know a couple of years ago and uh, basically half at least uh, less than half of my uh, calories uh, half of my meals right now would be based on uh, meat and what what health benefits have you observed well I mean for myself I feel better about myself and at the same time I do feel that in general I'm more uh, energetic in, uh, in general I think that's a really good uh, thing to do for everyone and uh, Professor Tai, now that you've uh, carried out the study, what next? I mean, what are you going to do with the findings? So what we're going to do next is to see how uh, different countries, considering their food uh, culture and also their population trend in the future, um, may worsen or uh, sort of alleviate their air pollution in the future. Because uh, um, different food paths, depending on the way you grow food and also the way you consume food, can have tremendous impact on uh, future air quality and also uh, climate change. So we want to look into the future to find the most sustainable food paths for different societies. And uh, this is the first study of its kind, is that right? I'm sorry, what's that? Is this the first study of its kind? 
Yes, actually very much indeed. Uh, we are the first uh, studies actually to look at how historical trends of diet in China have shaped air pollution because past studies have mostly just focused on uh, greenhouse gas emission and climate change, uh, which is a very separate issue from uh, air pollution, which uh, impacts health directly. And looking ahead, when you uh, follow up on the study, will you be working with the same uh, group of uh, people? Uh, yes, you're... and we will also extend our work to include more uh, countries as well, because food trends in different countries can be quite different. And how will you select these uh, countries you'll be uh, studying? So uh, we are mostly focusing on the major food consuming and food producing countries right now. So based on their import export, and we are also trying to see whether the food demand from one country would actually affect the air quality of another country through uh, food import from that uh, country. Yeah. So we are may- mainly looking at the major player in the global food market right now. Uh, but definitely, because air pollution can. Uh, be extend beyond a particular country. So what a one country do may actually impact the surrounding country and also the country where it is importing from as well. So we were very much looking forward to see uh, the global play uh, in this aspect. All right, that sounds uh, that's all sounds very interesting. Um, Professor Tai, we'll have to leave it there for now, but I'll definitely try to eat less meat. And uh, thank you very much for joining us this morning. That's uh, Professor Amos Tai, Associate Professor of the Earth System Science Program at the Chinese University's Faculty of Science. Also, many thanks to all of you who commented through email and our Facebook page. And of course, uh, my co-host Anna and producer Yuki. Now, here's the weather. Um, it will be cool in the morning, becoming mainly fine and dry later on with a top temperature of around 21 degrees. Winds moderate north to northeasterlies and the outlook mainly fine in the next couple of days. Windier on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Right now, the temperature reading at the observatory is 18 degrees, relative humidity 71%. How should the government allocate limited resources most effectively? Which areas do we need to reinforce and streamline so Hong Kong can reach a breakthrough? Let's seek boundless development despite the limited resources. Please share your views to help Hong Kong go higher and further. The 2022-23 budget public consultation has started. Share your thoughts at budget.gov.hk on ways to foster economic growth. It's 9.30, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. National Security Police say they've arrested six senior staff members or former senior staff members of an online media company for conspiracy to publish seditious material. The arrested persons include three men and three women aged 34 to 73. Over 200 uniformed and plainclothes police officers raided the office of the online media company in Kuantong. Health officials say they found no COVID cases in the overnight lockdown and testing operations at two residential blocks linked to two Cathay Pacific Air crew members. Officials tested 210 people at Twilight Court in Discovery Bay's Peninsula Village and a further 515 residents of the Seacrest in Tun Mun during the operations. And the Social Welfare Department says it sent a team of more than 20 experts to examine children living in a foster home at the center of abuse allegations. We'll have more on these and other stories at 10 o'clock. 
Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, great interpreter of Beethoven, and where oh so shy, quiet, and retiring doggy counter co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decipher what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. In depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. morning to you and welcome to Wednesday. It's Mid No Man's Week here on Morning Brew. I'm back with you for the rest of the week. We are doing the musical chairs for a couple of weeks. We're going to start at 10.40 today with composer and conductor Colin Touchin for our classical music chat. And the last one of this year, he's going to play you some music by the greats that's all about a subject we're probably going to be slightly over, mate, by now. That is, of course, food and drink. If we're lucky enough to, of course... After 11.30, RTL France's Philippe Davar will be live from Prédon, Paris to tell you all about the holiday season in France and, of course, play some more great French music. Chris Watts is still away stretching the world. He'll be back soonest. And in the meantime, he wishes you all the very best. Michael. Got Duran Duran on the way. It's 27 minutes to 10 o'clock. Right here on Radio 3, this is Cheetah. 